This is Emergency Medicine Match Advice, sponsored by Academic Life in Emergency Medicine. This is a podcast series designed to help medical students and residents strategically navigate applying to emergency medicine residency and fellowship programs. I am your host, Sarah Krasaniak from Stanford University. Let's get started. Welcome, everyone. Really excited to be here today. This is our annual program director reflection on Match 2023. And last year, we felt like it was a little bit spicy. And I got to tell you, I think this year it's going to be even spicier. So can't wait for this conversation. I am joined, as always, with my co-host, Michelle Lynn. Want to say hi? Hello. This is like the habanero episode. So watch out. Yes. I have to admit, I'm not totally up to date on my pepper spiciness level, but I like that. Habanero sounds spicy. So that's perfect. And I have two amazing guests with me today, so I will let them introduce themselves. Richard Church. Hi, everyone. Richard Church. I'm the program director at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center in Worcester, Massachusetts. I have a feeling this is going to be probably more like the ghost pepper episode, so we'll see what shakes out. I love that. And Avra. Hi, super excited to be here. Avra Fant. I am the program director at Northwestern in Chicago. And I agree with Richard. I think ghost pepper is a good description. Wonderful. And I have to say, Abra is a a re-invite from last year. So for those of you that listened to this podcast last year, Abra was here with us and she's like a savant looking at these match numbers. And so I'm excited to have her back for year number two. So let's just start with the numbers. I think that's a really good place to start. Every year, we have a table that looks at some of the important measures of the match. And so we will make sure this is included in the show notes. You can look at it online, but we'll talk about it as well right now just to level set with where we are at and why are we comparing the match to a variety of different peppers. And that really comes down to the numbers. So a couple of things that I think are really important to understand as you look at these numbers. This comes from the NRMP, which runs the match. And the link to this data is at the bottom of the table. So this is looking at all of those people who not only applied to residencies, but submitted a rank list to emergency medicine. So you might also see numbers out there floating around from ARIS. That's a little bit different than what we're looking at, which are those ultimate group of people that wanted to go into EM and submitted a rank list that included an EM program. So we have from 2015 to 2023 on this list, I'm just going to run through really quickly what we had for 2023, some general comparisons to the year before, but I will let you take that deep dive into the data when you look at this table on your own. So for 2023, we had 287 EM programs. That's up from 277 the year before. So 10 more programs than we had previously. And that was for a total of 3,010 EM positions offered. So seeing that steady rise in both programs and EM positions offered, but the next column, which is where some of this spiciness starts to come in, is the total number of applicants. So despite this increase in programs and the increase in positions offered, we had a drop in our total number of applicants. So from 3,081 in 2022 down to 2,765 in 2023. Now, our table has traditionally always had the same sort of data points on it. So I included all of those same data points on this table again for this year. But we'll talk about maybe what we should be looking at as we go forward into future years. But the NRMP looks at the number of MD senior applicants. 
And so that percentage this year was 48% of applicants into EM were graduating MD seniors. So this is students from LCME or medical schools in the U.S. who were graduating for the first time. And after we look at all of this data, the applicants, the residency programs, after the first round of the match, we had 132 unfilled programs in the EMAT. 46% of all of those 287 programs didn't fill in the first round of match. And that's huge. Almost half of the programs didn't fill. Last year, we talked about this shocking number because last year it was 69 programs or 25% of all programs that didn't fill. And it sort of felt like the sky was falling. Michelle, wouldn't you agree? It was like a little bit sky is falling. Yeah, absolutely. Like I need some milk. This is this is crazy. It's too spicy. Uh, we could not believe it. We we're trying to predict this on prior episodes and like that 25% of programs unfilled. That's totally a blip. We're just going to ignore it and, and move forward because EM is awesome. And then the sky fell. And so I'm curious how you guys are going to dissect this data. Yes, that blip turned into I know, a bloop. Is that bigger than a blip? I don't know. It turned into something bigger than a blip. And, and here we are this year. So when we look then at the number of unfilled positions after that first round of the match, we had 554 unfilled positions or 18% of all of the available positions were unfilled. And again, the blip last year that we were all panicking about was 218 unfilled positions, which now again, up to 554. So just skyrocketed. The other part of this table that you'll see is the number of EM positions that are filled by MD US seniors. And this has traditionally been a marker of competitiveness in terms of how competitive a program is, is what percentage of their program fills with MD graduating seniors. So again, we've seen the steady decline in emergency medicine. 2023, it was 42% of our positions that were filled by MD US seniors, and that's down from 55% from last year. Now, I had to make a new table partially because I just love making these tables. It's a little bit of like a dopamine hit and as I get to put these columns together. But I thought it would be interesting just to compare this to some of the other specialties in 2023. And I looked at the core specialties, like the core rotations that our students are doing, and then also the ones that are historically competitive with emergency medicine, like radiology, anesthesiology, and the things that I think we often see students deciding between. So this will be the second table and you'll see emergency medicine compared to several other specialty programs. Again, emergency medicine with 132 unfilled programs, and 554 unfilled positions. The next closest specialty is pediatrics that had 30 unfilled programs relative to our 132 and 86 unfilled positions relative to our 554. And again, if you look at that compared to anesthesiology and neurosurgery with one or three unfilled programs, and then you get to things like ortho, plastics, radiology, no unfilled programs, no unfilled positions, everything filled first round. So we're starting to get a little bit nervous here in emergency medicine. And I think that, that there's a lot to think about. And certainly at all of the conferences and meetings I've been to since the match, many of which have been with Abra and Richard. There've been lots of discussions about this. So I wanted to turn it over. Let's just start with Abra. Tell me, you look at these tables, you look at these numbers, what are you thinking? So I think really what we're seeing is a little bit of a supply and demand mismatch more than anything else. 
So the number of folks applying into EM now is not actually appreciably different than what it was maybe five years ago. I think we're a little bit a victim of our own success. The table only goes back to 2015, but starting around 2013, EM got really popular. We were having excessively high fill rates from LCME seniors. We were having really good percentages of things getting filled and lots of people who wanted to be EM docs who were going unmatched, which is not a great situation, right? We have an extraordinary need in this country for emergency practitioners. And so I think that was not the right situation to be in where there were lots of people who wanted to be EM that there weren't spots for. But I think we got probably a little ahead of ourselves (laughs) with the number of spots that are now available over a very short term, coupled with the pandemic. And so I think that there is probably just a little bit of a mismatch that now there's maybe a few too many spots for the number of people who traditionally will want to go into EM out of any sort of graduating senior class. So I think that's kind of the first thing that strikes my mind. The second thing is we think of sometimes EM as being sexy in the knife and gun club, which makes us think about urban training environments. But in reality, Most of EM is stuff that happens every day in the suburbs, in the country. It's primary care. And so if you think about that, there are training programs in places that are not inner cities and big urban places that are going to give you a really great education. But until you sort of understand that as an applicant, I think it's really hard to think about, oh, I can get a really great EM experience in this small city or in a slightly less urban environment and still be able to have a great career coming out and do the things that I want to do. So I think that's not really in the table, but that's something over the course of the match reflection that I've sort of noticed. So that's kind of where my brain has been at. I think also we are all somewhat impressionable from numbers And so, as Michelle said, when things happened last year, the optimists in us wanted to think it was a blip. But I think a lot of us also thought, oh, goodness, does this portend really terrible things? Because it's hard as a medical student, right? You've only done maybe one or two rotations in EM. You're listening to advisors who may have no experience in EM at all. They're just looking at these numbers. And if they start to see a trend that the match percentage is going down, they may tell you, hey, This is not a competitive specialty. Consider something else. And until you really get your feet wet in the specialty, it's hard to say that, no, despite all this, this is exactly the career for me. So while we were victims of our own success, I think we are a little bit victims of what happened last year. And that's kind of amplified itself. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating, this idea that it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy where you know, if the specialty is seen as less competitive, then the more competitive students may not consider it because they're told, reach higher, you can do better. When in fact, right, we should really have students that are choosing what they want to do because they want to do it. And it doesn't necessarily have to align with their real or perceived competitiveness. I'm wondering, Abra, you mentioned the pandemic briefly, but I wonder if you could just tease that out a little bit more. Like, what do you think the real effect of the pandemic was? on EM and how much of that, how much of our match stats can we blame on the pandemic? I like to blame everything on the pandemic. Any someone's unhappy, pandemic. It's now becoming this thing I can't blame it anymore. But can we blame the pandemic? I, I think yes, in some ways. If you look at where sort of the numbers start trailing off, 
it corresponds to when students were pulled from clinical rotations. And so I think it is exceptionally difficult to want to do EM if you have not really been immersed in the clinical space. It's one of those rotations that people come in and they love it or they hate it. And when you've spent your third year into your fourth year doing a lot of things virtually, it's actually really hard to have that exposure and to understand. So I think that was a huge part of it is that people just didn't get that immersive experience over the early pandemic when the students were really not part of the clinical environment. I think there was probably a surge of popularity at the beginning as there was with sort of all healthcare providers that we were getting people are banging their pots out the windows and lauding as healthcare heroes. We were some of the specialties that were continuing to work through everything because people were still having emergencies. We couldn't close the ED down. But as sort of the pandemic dragged on, I think there was a lot of press about EM specifically continuing to have a lot of burnout, continuing to have working conditions that perhaps felt more stressful than they were pre-pandemic. And I think students are incredibly attuned to that. And so there is probably kind of those two factors coming from the pandemic, at least in my mind, that are driving the popularity of EM and students wanting to go in. Yes, I couldn't agree anymore. And I think that also one of the conversations I've heard come up recently is how students, even when they're not in their EM rotations, are experiencing the ED when they're coming down as consultants, when they're coming through other rotations. And what are they seeing when they come into the ED? And what are the attitudes that they're seeing from us as EM physicians or EM residents or EM fellows from our nurses? And what does that look like to them, even if if they're not getting to an EM rotation? And then I think the other thing that probably needs to be mentioned, Richard, I wondered if you could maybe talk about the workforce paper, because that comes up often in these discussions. So maybe highlight briefly, what is the workforce paper? And what is the impact that you think it had? And and is that fair that it had that impact? Sure. I think without getting into super particulars about it. It was essentially a paper that had come out right as the pandemic was really unfolding, which was sort of telling folks that there wasn't going to be as much of a need or jobs available for classically trained, residency trained emergency physicians in the near future, that there was going to be an increase in the amount of mid-level providers that were going to be taking over a lot of the work that was going to be needed. And that got an incredible amount of press and thought very, very quickly at the same time as people were really diving into the pandemic. And as Abrad stated, much less clinical experiences for those students who really needed to be in the emergency department to decide if this was the place for them. Yeah, definitely. It was like this double whammy of pandemic plus this workforce study. And I think other specialties have experienced something similar. There's often parallels drawn with anesthesiology that went through this about 10 years ago when similar data was coming out about the workforce and anesthesiology. And, you know, I think there's been some concerns raised now about that paper, and maybe they underestimated the amount of attrition from the specialty, which would actually dampen that impact of relative surplus. But Yeah. I mean, everybody wants a job, right? Nobody wants to get through residency and then not be able to get a job or not have sort of the job of their choice available to them. So yeah, that's a really scary prospect. People have loans to pay off and families to support. And 
you get through three or four years of residency and you want to know that there's something waiting for you, that that pot of gold, maybe literally or at least figuratively, is waiting for you at the end of residency so that you can live that good attending life. And I think there's also the irony that attrition actually sped up a little bit because of the pandemic. Folks were retiring a little bit earlier than everyone thought, and all of a sudden there actually became an increased need for EM providers and physicians, which nobody could have predicted a pandemic to happen. But it was interesting that that came about despite what this paper was sort of predicting. Yeah. And I think the other sort of really interesting thing is, again, we think about EM in these urban centers. And is there sort of a lack of a lot of jobs in some of the big cities, right? San Francisco, New York. Potentially, it's going to be a little harder to get jobs there. But there are huge swaths of the United States where there are no board-certified emergency physicians at all. And if you think about it, if your aunt or brother or parents live in those areas, like don't you want them to receive the same level of care that your friends who live in the big city can get? And I think we have such a great drive in EM to think about the folks that fall between the cracks. We think about the underserved folks. We think about undocumented, people who are under uninsured. And we, again, think about them in urban areas. But some of the most needy populations in terms of healthcare in this country are in these sort of rural and medically underserved areas. And so I think that's something as a specialty we need to start really addressing and get people excited about taking care of those folks, too, who need it just as much as inner city populations or uninsured migrants and, and other populations like that. I love that point, Abra. And it, it just made me already think maybe our next series is like rural training in EM. And you and I particularly are both in pretty urban areas. And I couldn't agree with you more, but it always as a program director makes me reflect on like, what am I doing to prepare my residents to take that job at the critical access hospital in Wyoming or Idaho, where there's no residency program speeding into these hospitals. And, you know, truly, what is our obligation as education leaders to help fill that void? Because you're right, I think that that's a really important part. And it gets back to your original point, which is to say, most of EM isn't urban level one trauma, knife and gun club. A lot of EM is the bread and butter and the zebras and the patients that may not need the thoracotomy, but like really need a lot of really smart people taking care of them. And how can we supply that? Okay. Before we completely derail and start talking about rural training, because I got to save my excitement for another session. I think the other big number to me in this year's match stats are the number of programs that didn't fill. 42% didn't fill on that first match. And Richard, you are one of the programs in that 42% that didn't fill on that first round. And I just wondered if you could share your perspective and your reflection. What was that like from the from the PD side of things to not match on that or not fill on that first round? Absolutely. So being at a program that is historically one of the oldest programs in the country, certainly one of the, the most well-established programs in the country that had always filled. I trained at this program. I was a fellow at this program. I've been an APD and now a PD at this program. It, it came as certainly as a shock. And it wasn't until some of this data came out later to show that nearly 50% of programs, including well-known programs throughout the country that we would have never thought wouldn't have filled, 
were in the same boat. It wasn't until then that myself and our leadership group felt some solace in realizing that maybe this wasn't about us. This was about this much bigger sort of issue. There was a lot of programmatic soul searching that went into this. And were there things that could have been done better or done differently during the application recruitment process? We thought about what were the different roles of different things that played a part in this, the role of geography, certainly what we've just been talking about, and the role of where your program lies. We are in a large mid-sized city, the second largest city in New England which serves a massive, massive population and a massive swath of land with massive disparity in the types of, of patients and acuity. But because we know that a lot of students are looking for what does EM mean, and it means big city, urban, knife and gun club, all those kinds of things, we didn't necessarily fit the mold. And, and honestly, I think there are lots and lots of folks who don't even know where Worcester, Massachusetts is or what the program looks like. What was the role of the number of sub-interns that we had rotating through? We certainly had less. And that, again, I think geography played a big role in that. A lot of recruitment comes out of the people that that rotate through your department as a sub-I. Lastly, and certainly not least, was the role of the virtual interview realm. We have known and we realize even more now that we need boots on the ground. We need people coming in the door to see our physical plant, to see the city of Worcester, for example, and realize there is a massive amount of stuff happening here, and you can only disseminate so much of that information in the social media realm, for example. And no matter how many pictures I put on social media and how much I tweet about this and that and the other thing, people need to come in through the door to really appreciate what our program, as well as all those other programs, have to offer. And so those, those were really kind of the biggest things that we were feeling and kind of reflecting on as the process sort of unfolded. Yeah, I can definitely appreciate that. And if it makes you feel any better, I think a lot of that reflection happened probably across all programs. I mean, certainly even within my program, even though we filled, I mean, this was a wake up call for all of us. So we have also reflected on how who's rotating with us. How are we choosing those people who rotate with us? How many people rotate with us? How many people are we interviewing? You know, all of these questions. I think any savvy program director looks at these numbers and has a reflection, has a reflective moment where you're like, okay, like what are we doing in our own program as well to make sure that that we do fill? The geography thing is so hard. I mean, obviously you can't pick up your program and move it. Your solution is trying to get more people there, show them what it's like. I don't know, Michelle, as someone that may be advising medical students, I know you talk to a lot of medical students and you're in San Francisco, you're at UCSF. What do you tell students about places that aren't in one of these like top five major urban areas and have great programs? Yeah, that is such a great question. I mean, I think we are so lucky to be in these urban centers. But yeah, I think CEDARS are getting much more savvy, especially as this data is coming out of saying, gosh, we need to be a lot more intentional about what we really want out of this career and what places can provide the education that we want from it. Is it like, let's get this stereotypical Knife and Gun Club, you guys mentioned type mental image of what residency is like. Where can I get great training? As you guys have already kind of really eloquently explained. And so we actually, as part of an alien team, we're, we're working on a paper. You're going to see a lot of papers coming out, y'all, over the next, I don't know, six to 12 months about what the heck happened with this match. Why? There's going to be a lot of opinion papers. But we tried to look at predictors of why programs were unmatched. 
And it's not necessarily saying that they're less competitive, but it's just like, why did it happen? And one of the interesting facts would actually correlates with what you guys are saying is geography. Interestingly, certain geographical areas just tended to be unfilled. And I wonder if it's just like you said, Richard, about people having virtual interviews or not really understanding about what programs can offer in a virtual format. And so I wonder to continue with this food metaphor, is this like a Swiss cheese model? We have all these holes that just happen to be lining up. COVID, burnout, workforce paper, virtual interviews. It just happened to line up to create this phenomenon that we have experienced in 2023. And so I, I tell students, keep a lookout for these papers coming out. Always have a mentor, several mentors if you can, who've actually digested this information and give you really reasonable feedback and advice. I want to go back really quickly to the idea that we have a bit of a mismatch between like sort of availability of spots and people applying to EM. Maybe some of this is level setting with like what true EM looks like, but there is a, a numerical mismatch that's pretty dramatic. Do you think anything should be done about that? Should we be looking at looking at that as a specialty or at the program level? And do you see that changing? Now we're getting into the real spice. So I, I think it's interesting. I think that we have heard time and time again that accrediting bodies are not in the job of market shares and trying to figure out what the need is for physicians coming out of residency. And on some levels, as long as grads are coming out fully prepared and meeting their requirements to graduate and to become board certified, then is there harm to having more spots than there are people interested? And I suppose there isn't as long as those empty spots are not getting pigeonholed onto people who do not really want to be EM, folks for the sake of filling in work slots. So I, I think it's great to have a spot for every single person that wants to be an EM physician. That's fantastic. I, I do think we still need to look a little bit about that distribution because as you can see on your chart, there were still 100 USMD seniors who wanted to go into EM who did not match. So there is still a little bit of just mismatch within those numbers. But I also think that that means that some programs probably have to accept that occasionally they're going to have a slot that is unfilled rather than, again, try to force somebody into a, the career of EM, which is not easy if they don't really love it and don't want to do it. So I think that that's probably the simplest solution rather than trying to limit the number of slots. I think that there's also this idea of we need a better geographic redistribution of the attending workforce. So do we start really targeting recruitment of people that want to be EM doctors in rural areas and getting them into some of these programs that are going to be excellent at training them for those things to better equilibrate that. I think the other thing might be this is perhaps a good time for international grads. EM has not really been a particularly easy field over the last decade for folks who did not graduate in the U.S., and maybe this is the time for them to, if, they, if EM is in their hearts and that's what they really want to do, I think that that's a good place for the deficit to be made up. Yeah, I struggle with that question of the ACNGME is not the filter or should not regulate how many coming in. But then the question is, someone should be looking at this. Someone should be regulating this. I think it's a little bit controversial because everyone's like, oh, no, I'm finger on my nose. It's not us. 
But someone's really got to take a big picture look. And I think there is a workforce task force being assembled across our national organizations to look at this question. So hopefully some answers to come down the line. But to to bounce off your idea of the idea of supply and demand mismatch, which I, I love that concept, is we're talking about MD grads mostly on the table that Sarah presented. And I think a lot of the mismatch has to do with this new influx, relatively new influx of DO students coming into the a single accreditation match system. I'm curious how that plays into all of our conversations and the table. And maybe I could tag Richard first and then we'll talk with Aber next. I'm just curious what you guys think. Yeah, I think it's certainly something that needs to be taken into consideration. And, and, and certainly when we start looking at these tables and how the data gets kind of chopped up. And I, I think a lot of programs can certainly be looking at some of these fantastic grads from these other institutions across the country as ways to train people who are wonderfully interested in our field and willing to really move and come to different parts of the country to train in those kinds of things. I think it's a newer group of trainees that we really need to be looking at more closely. Yeah, I think it is a little bit of a frame shift for a lot of programs and program directors. Again, because we have had this relative success over the course of five to 10 years, as defined by sort of these NRMP numbers with filling with MD seniors. But I totally agree that there are fantastic applicants that don't fit that mold. Senior DO students are absolutely part of that. There are certainly many wonderful folks that have graduated from international schools, people that are non-traditional applicants who also don't come into these numbers. So whether that's people who were in the military for a while and are coming back to match in, whether these are people who have started a residency in a different specialty and realized that EM is the thing they love. While these numbers are nice because we can track them over years, they don't tell the whole story. And I do think that program directors, in addition to the holistic review that I think most of us have adopted over the last couple of years, need to start seriously looking at some of these folks from perhaps non-traditional uh, pathways because I do think that they're going to be fantastic EM docs if that's where their passion is and what they want to do. I think part of the benefit of the U.S. News and World boycott of medical schools is really trying to debunk this myth that numbers of research rankings in medical school mean something when it comes to the product of their medical students. And so hopefully with that off the table, we can start actually looking at the applicants for who they are individually and how they fit with sort of the ethos of our program, our mission, and and hopefully fix some of that mismatch. I love all of that. And it actually segues so nicely into my final two questions. So my final two questions for each of you, and I will weigh in as well, I suppose, as part of the overall PD reflection. You know, Richard, you talked about one of these things already, but my two questions for you are, first of all, will this match change what you do for the upcoming recruitment season? And what is your advice for medical students who are considering going into emergency medicine? So Richard, I'll start with you. Certainly. So absolutely going forward, we are going to continue to look at how to revamp slash restructure a little bit what our recruitment season looks like. Certainly have to look at possibly interviewing some more applicants than we typically would 
we will continue to make a concerted effort on the social media front to really highlight the personality of our program, as well as the geography of our program, what we are doing, what we are about, the types of patients we're seeing, where we are located, all that kind of stuff to really hammer that home. Absolutely. From a grassroots level, I myself work and are speaking all the time with other leaders across the country about all things related to this, but certainly about our own program. So really trying to toot the horn of our own program so that they can get that disseminated to the students at their level also in those different parts of the country. As far as what kind of messaging I would be giving to students and the messaging that I'm giving to our own students, because I do a lot of that mentoring for our own students here at the medical school, is really get down and do your homework when it comes to geographically where you think you'd like to train. What do all these different programs look like? Understanding that there are so many other places outside of the major metropolitan areas and that there are wonderful programs all over the country and that there are wonderful opportunities to train and that you may be, if you don't, if you don't really get down and do your homework, you're going to be missing out. All right. Abra, what do you say? This is a tough question. I, I am always up at night thinking about our recruitment process. We are fortunate. Our program is in downtown Chicago. So I have the benefit of a name of a city that people recognize that is unfortunately in the news a lot for penetrating trauma, which going back to our classic mindset of EM plays well for for my advantage in terms of recruitment. So I think we are definitely going to focus on people who are interested in our branch of America. We are not a coast, although the lake is beautiful. So it is a a specific person that wants to be in a city in the Midwest. We had a lot of success last year with rotators, with folks that were able to come to our second looks and really get to see our facilities in person. So I think continuing to focus, as Richard said, on our rotators, allowing people to sort of experience the program for a month, I think helps a lot. I I am hesitant to increase our slots. I have always been an over-interviewer in general, but I kind of worry that there's diminishing returns at some point because, again, I think there's some panic on the student side and they're, they're still a little bit in the over-application fever. And so I, I don't want to interview people just because they're holistically very good, but they have no intention of ever moving to Chicago. And so the more slots you increase, the kind of more you get people who are just coming to to sort of see and to check off the box, but are really not particularly serious. So I don't know that we're going to increase our numbers too much, already bearing in mind that we interview more per slot than most other programs. Advice for students considering EM, this is going to sound cheesy, but it's it's a calling. Like this type of medicine is not easy. There's a lot about the system that weighs on you on a daily basis. So make sure that when you do your rotation, when you do your aways, that you love the minute-to-minute stuff, that it's not just the resuscitations that excite you or the procedures, but that it is working with social work to make sure someone can get an outpatient appointment or a test, that it is taking care of the person who just needs a place to sleep for the night, that it is calming the anxiety of people that are living in the United States right now, which is not necessarily an easy place to live for a lot of groups of people. 
if you get joy out of that, then you're going to have a very long and fulfilling career. So just be honest with yourself when you're doing your rotations. And there are fantastic programs out there. There will be a spot for you. There will be a job for you when you graduate. So don't worry about those things. Really think more about does the work itself bring you joy? Most of the time, no one's going to have it 100% of the time, but does most of the time it bring you joy? And if it does, then you're in the right specialty. All right. So I feel, first of all, very seen uh, about the staying up at night, thinking about recruitment, because I really resonate with that. And, you know, I think this year, more than any year, I'm really going to be thinking about what we're doing with recruitment. And uh, that might be something that's not well appreciated on the student side about like how much PDs think about and struggle with like, what are the best practices in recruitment? So I very much agree with what each of you have said. I am definitely trying to increase my touch points with students, whether they're my Stanford students or my rotating students, really maximizing, just like you said, Abra, like who's coming in to rotate, making sure that they're having a great experience here. We certainly don't want to oversell and present ourselves as something we're not, but really making sure that when they're here, they get to meet our faculty, they get to interact with our residents, they get to see the cool things that you could do here as a resident. I also agree with you with the increasing of slots, trying to avoid that like knee-jerk reaction of like push the panic button, just interview more people. Because I agree, I think that you do have diminishing returns with people that are like, maybe I live in California, why not? But actually, it's like, really low on their list. They don't really want to be here. And ultimately, what I really want are people that buy into what our program does and what we offer and what we want from our residents. And we want to find that alignment. So making sure that we are putting that out into the world, whether it's through social media or residency fairs, or, you know, I think it's still really yet to be determined about what happens with in-person visits or second looks or interviews, but waiting to see what happens with that. I will also thank you, Abra, because you put another session in my mind, which is to talk about, right, we have updated application processes where now we're going to have the geographic preferencing. And how does that impact what programs do or how we invite people or make those decisions? And that's a whole other topic for another session. So, and then the advice I'm giving to EM students is try to get the breadth of emergency medicine in your rotations and how you choose your away rotations. Try to find a a rotation that is different from your home institution. If you're at an academic place, go to that county place. See what that's like. They're very different. There's not a right or a wrong way, uh, but every individual is going to have something that they feel works better for them. Or if you're at a county place, go to that academic site. See what that's like because you need to find the place that's right for you. And for those that are still deciding between, should I do anesthesia or EM, I think that in some ways, those types of decisions get distilled down to things that don't really matter. We don't really have board scores anymore, but like, am I competitive enough to go to anesthesia? Well, then I should go to anesthesia and not settle for EM. They're very different careers. They're very different specialties. I could never wake up early enough to be an anesthesiologist. I love my swing shifts. So students need to think about their specialty decision as like truly what will bring you joy on most days, not every specialty brings joy on all days. But like, what is the thing that's really going to make you excited to do your job? And residency is a very short period of time in this decision in your career. And so don't think about it as like, what does my residency time look like? How long is it? How stressful is it? But look at like, what do I want to be doing when I'm done with residency? And 
And what do I like doing? What are the patients I like taking care of? And making sure that you understand that EM is a very diverse and broad specialty. Okay. With that, I mean, I can hang out here with you guys all day, but I figure you all have things to do. Our listeners probably have things to go do. So we will circle it back around. Let's end with Michelle's question. Put your penny down. What do you think is going to happen in this year's match? Will we have let's or more unmatched spots than we had this year? I'm going to go last. That's my privilege as host of this podcast. So Richard, you want to go. You're going to say more or less than 554 unfilled positions. I think there are going to be fewer. I think that our students are going to be much more savvy with the process. I think that with more opportunities to do away rotations than they've had in the last couple of years, there are going to be more eyeballs on programs, on different types of programs. And I think that we will see fewer. How many fewer? I'm not going to say, but I think there will be fewer. That's good. You didn't have to put a number on it. I think Michelle left that open. So good. You're going with fewer. Abra, what do you say? Oh, I, I hope you're right, Richard. I really do. I am skeptical. I think it will be more, mostly because I think that the way advising happens in most medical schools is not particularly suited to EM. It's getting better in terms of the number of EM folks that are in medical student offices and doing advising and are vice deans and things like that. But the majority are still not EM trained. The majority are still mid-career or higher. And remember a time when EM was sort of a stepchild. And I think that there is a lot of reliance on these numbers. And I think people will be advised to avoid EM for the next couple of years, unfortunately. And as students, you should listen (laughs) to the people who are advising you. But I do think EM in particular does suffer from not having great representation at the medical school level for a lot of these things. So I think it's going to take us a few years to bounce back. Avra dropping the ghost pepper at the very end, like that, feeling the spice. Man, so now I feel like I'm sort of this tiebreaker. Can I weigh in? I'm curious now. Oh, yes, please. Well, I'm going to stall for you so you can think about it some more, which is over under. I am also, last time I went a little Pollyanna and thought it was going way down. So I'm going to go not quite like evil Darth Vader negativity, more of a more of a Mandalorian analytical, this is the way I'm going to go. It's going to go more. I think there's going to be some momentum to this thing. Things aren't just going to break and stop and pivot back. Just like the anesthesia literature, when they just dropped and they had huge numbers of unfilled numbers, it took them five or six years to climb their way out of it. And I mean, I'll be, there are different factors involved, but I think there's going to be a little momentum as we before we start recovering from this. So I'm going to go over. This is the way. All right. I'm not sure that that extra time gave me any more clarity, but if there's one thing that EM docs do well, we commit. We make a decision, say an answer, commit, and just move on. So with that in mind, I really want to believe in my heart that this is going to go down, but I got to say, I think, can I say stable? Well, that wasn't an option. Okay. I think I'm going to say it's it's going to be about the same, but probably a little bit over. I agree that I just think, I think EM as a specialty right now is internally looking at this on and how we can fix this and the impact of what we're doing internally won't spread to the people that need to hear it and see it in this next year. And it's going to take that couple of years for us to figure out among ourselves 
what happened? How do we fix this? What do we do? Does it need fixed, right? Like fixing is a little bit of a maybe weird construct to think about, but it's going to take a little bit of time. So I'm going to go a little bit over, but I really hope Richard is right. I hope I'm wrong. Richard, we'll all buy you a drink at the next chord, you know, if you're right. And we'll see what happens. And Richard, I'll let you close us out here. I'll just say that I will stay the eternal optimist and I'll leave it at that. I I have to have faith in our students and in their abilities to do the work, to do the research, to figure out what's right for them. And we'll see. We'll find out. I love it. So much suspense. So much will come between now and next match. So thank you all. This has been incredible. Love getting to chat with all of you. As always, I appreciate your insights. And thanks for helping me with another year of program director reflection on the match. Thank you for joining us for this episode of EM Match Advice. You can listen to any of our episodes for free on Podbean. You can also check out a summary of today's episode as a blog post on alium.com. 